Thriving, Not Surviving, with your host, Gina Gardner. To lead others, you first need to be the best version of yourself and lead from a place of wholeness. Motivation, empowerment, leadership, personal and spiritual development are just a few of the topics you will hear on Thriving, Not Surviving. So sit back and enjoy the show with your host, Gina Gardner. Hello there, it's Gina Gardner here, and I'm so pleased to welcome Catherine Ulrich today. Catherine is an expert in her own field, and I'm going to uh, hand over to her very shortly. But I'd like you to understand just how much experience she has, because what she has to say is so worth listening to, and is so pertinent in today's world. Catherine Ulrich is a partner at global executive search firm, Odgers Bernston in their Silicon Valley office and leads their US diversity practice. She has over 20 years of executive recruiting experience at some of the largest search firms, focusing on C-suite, VP level, and board searches for technology companies. Earlier in her career, Catherine worked in engineering, strategy consulting, and software product marketing at leading companies. Catherine has dedicated her career to helping diverse candidates advance in their careers. She founded a Silicon Valley nonprofit for women in technology and actively works with clients on hiring diversity candidates. She's an advisor to Athena Alliance, helping companies hire women into board roles. Catherine is author of the award-winning career book, Getting to the Top, Strategies for Career Success, and as a speaker on career development and diversity topics. Catherine has a BS cum laude in electrical engineering from the University of Michigan and an MBA with top honors from UCLA Anderson School of Management. Now you'll recognize that I needed to read that because there was no way I was gonna remember all of those details. Welcome, we are so pleased to have you here on the Enlightened Leadership Programme. I'd like you, if you would, to just share a little of your journey of how you came to be where you are and why diversity is so important to you. Thank you, Gina. Well, as you heard in the bio, I'm an engineer and an MBA, and it may, may have been apparent to some of you that I've worked in male-dominated environments my entire career. I was one of very few women in these environments, a, a minority. 20 years ago, I figured out my purpose in life take my success as a businesswoman, and then mentor young women. Now, it's evolved from that to help anyone that's in some sort of minority class. It still is focused on how do I help them excel in their careers. And I started in business, but then I moved into executive search, where I'm an insider helping people understand why are some people getting hired and not others. Now, Diversity is something that's very close to your heart, isn't it? Why is it, particularly when you're talking about um, organizations, why is diversity so important? There are countless studies now on the benefits that companies achieve by having diversity. 
It starts with profit, EBITDA, innovation. We can come up with new ideas because we've got a diverse team. There are go-to-market benefits. Think about different people with different views come up with a new market that we're not serving today. And then talent pool benefits of having this diverse workforce. And this benefit comes from having these diverse teams. We hear it as diversity of thought. How do we get these different ideas in the room? And this comes up because we all have bias. I've heard it said that if we have a brain, we have bias. It's either conscious or unconscious. But some of the biases that we might have, similarity, we surround ourselves with people like ourselves. We all do that, our friend base, the people we work with. And whether that's gender, race, ethnicity, LGBTQ status, their place in life, are they a single or married with young kids? You know, we all have this similarity bias of some sort. Um, I say all, I'm going to use a lot of generalizations today, so please excuse me on that. Another bias that we might all have is conforming. We follow along with the others around us. And you can see this when we get off the underground, we all follow the people in front of us and oops, that's not the exit I need. We just kind of follow along with the crowd and we conform with what the, what the people in the room have decided. You know, okay, that sounds good. Other biases are experience or education. So they need to have worked at a certain company in a certain role or gone to a certain school. And then even pre-COVID, distance bias. Oh, that person lives too far away, so they might not be interested in this job because it's too far a commute. So all of those biases get in the way of us having this diverse team and getting those, di those benefits that we see from diversity. Now, one thing about these diverse teams, it takes, it's easier to have a team like yourself. You know, people that'll say, yes, we can reach agreement quicker. A diverse team takes longer to gel, to come together, but the benefits of that diversity and having those extra thoughts are far better results and worth the reward of working hard to get the diversity on your team. I think you can see um, examples of that all around, can't you? So let's put ourselves in the position of someone who wants to hire a, a new member of staff. And I know you have huge expertise in this, in terms of how to go about it to ensure that you are creating a diverse and, and really um, a great team that's going to bring the best out in one another and do the best for your company. I have been collecting, if you will, learning best practices in hiring for 15, 20 years now. And I gladly share this with you and your audience. So let me kind of break down the hiring process and where I've learned, because it's beyond just the few things being picked up in media today around what you should be doing for hiring. So let's start the process out. When you start in hiring, you come up with a job spec. If you think about it, historically, the job spec had a lot of things on that list. And it was really so that you met legal obligations, and so that you could tell the internal candidate they weren't qualified. So you came up with this laundry list. Well, today, think about starting that, that job specification with a list of competencies. What is most important in this job? And that's where you want to start, this list of competencies. 
and and then we work from there. There's a lot of press right now around taking that jobs back and using language that's inclusive. Yes, and we need to go much further than that. This competencies, what's most important, get agreement on that. And, and then limit the list. Don't have that laundry list that everybody wants to put in there. What is most important? And, and make sure that that's what we're looking for. You know, we added the laundry list, but women in particular, if you think about gender bias, women will look at the laundry list and say, well, I don't have six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 on the list, so they won't even apply. Mm -hmm. So keep the list to what you need. Watch words like, you know, need six to 10 years of experience at this level. You know, that's going to exclude the person who only has five. And, and again, that, that person who thinks that they need to meet every requirement in the spec. So start with that list of competencies. The next step is coming up with your candidate pool, okay? So we've got our, our competencies, we know what we're looking for, and now our candidate pool. There's a, the Rooney Rule, which, long story there, but Rooney Rule says we need at least one diverse candidate. Well, I say we gotta go beyond one candidate. We're, we're at the point we can go beyond one. So do we have enough diverse candidates in the pool? There's a real simple tool you can use around bias at every step of the stage to get more, um, to address and look at, do we have, an, do we, are we looking at diversity? It's using if then statements. If I'm starting a search and I'm looking at a candidate pool, ask, do we have enough candidates in the pool? If not, then, Let's take longer and get more diverse candidates. So just added this little if then in question. You know, if I'm at this stage, then I do this. Yeah. And in, in some case, again, one of the biases that comes out, it, there's this expedience, expediency bias. I need to get more, or I need to get these candidates to the hiring manager quicker. And so, but it's okay to say pause. I don't have enough diversity candidates for you so because, it's, because it's gonna take longer to find them. And then, and then take that time, take the extra you know, week or whatever it might be to get some more diverse candidates. It's now about you know, reaching out to where those candidate pools are, making sure you have networks in that space and then get that diversity in the candidate pool. I also always get asked, well, do we have to lower our standard to get diversity? The answer is no. We have that list of competencies. We're going to hire to that list of competencies. But one thing to remember is that males may get promoted, white males may get promoted every 24 months, where women and diverse candidates are getting promoted every 36 plus months. Can so I even, yes, go ahead. Is there a difference between women and people who come from uh, from diverse groups that are um, ethnic groups and, and so on? Or do women and those diverse groups, do they get the same chances or are they different? That's an it depends answer. There's a lot of it depends. It okay. depends on the company and what their priorities are. Right. And so some companies have already addressed women. Some companies have already had a diverse workforce, so they don't have it. So there are a lot of it depends. So even though I use generalizations, some companies may have already mastered these things. 
in general, made a start. Yeah. Okay. Right. In general, white males are getting promoted much faster. So if you think about it, even 10 years into a career, a man may have been promoted three times more than a woman. So when you're looking at the candidate pools, it's okay to look at if you wanted a VP or a director, it's okay to look at title or two down. You yeah. might find a woman or a diverse candidate who's already doing that job, didn't get the promotions, doing the work of three people, has the experience, but doesn't have the title nor the pay. Yeah. And so you may have to widen the criteria of what you're looking for for the diverse candidates, but you don't lower the standard. And that's where having the competencies becomes so crucial, doesn't it? Because they may not have the seven years experience with the title, but if they've been doing the job and they understand the job, then they'll have the competencies, won't they? Exactly. So you'll see how the competencies also then feed into the next stage, which is interviewing. Okay. So when we get to the interview, you interview around those competencies. How many times have interviews started with, you know, the, the chit chat to, you know, make sure people are comfortable, people are always nervous, and someone likes the candidate after three minutes, so they're going to hire them without ever interviewing around those competencies. Well, think about it. It's a similarity bias. I've heard of a CEO hiring someone because the person went fly fishing and never asked him a question about his background. So it's, it's really about those competencies and interviewing around that rather than biases of similarity or education or experience. So a couple other things that come up when you're interviewing around those competencies, and th there is a lot more we can talk about on how do you interview on those competencies. The key word I'd use is behavioral interviewing, but that's, a, that's another program in itself. Yeah. Um, the things to look at with the competencies are, you know, when you've got a diverse candidate, often new competencies are added. Well, um, I had, here's an example I had. I had a CEO candidate and they said, well, he doesn't have a Rolodex of, um, he doesn't have a Rolodex of CEOs at top tier banks. And I said, well, the competency was be able to have a conversation with CEOs of top tier banks. And he's done that in spades, but he doesn't have that Rolodex because he's not a salesperson, okay? But they yeah. added a competency that this candidate had to overcome because he wasn't like you know, the, the, the board and, uh, that was interviewing him, okay? And presumably the other candidates weren't expected to do the same. No, and the person that was hired didn't have a that didn't have a rolodex of CEOs at tier, top tier banks. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Now the other thing about diverse candidates is they're often also evaluated differently on the same competency. And here, one of the another bias comes into play often. It's called agentic bias, which means men are evaluated as you're more strategic. And women are seen more as people person, okay? Yep. And so, you know, an example here of a candidate was, well, because she's so collaborative, she's not going to be strategic enough for this general management role. And that was based on what evidence? Um, it, it, 
Actually, in this case, it was based on the prior person leaving was not collaborative enough and made decisions on his own. So she said she's very collaborative and would get the input of the team before making decisions. She was quite strategic, had made some very bold moves, but she was going to be strategic and gather, I'm sorry, collaborative and gather information before she made strategic examples. But they, they said assumptions, had they not, having heard the word collegiate and collaborative, they then made an assumption that, that she couldn't be strategic. Exactly. Um, McKinsey has pointed out that when they evaluate team members, take a man and a woman on it, that the men will get comments, oh, you had a very, you know, very strategic project. The woman will get evaluated on the same kind of work, the same project, you did a good job managing the team. That's the agentic bias that comes in about women are better at leading people, leading the team, being collaborative. They're not seen as strategic. So when you're evaluating on a competency, are you fairly evaluating on that competency or are you introducing a bias you might have? So it gets, these are the nuances of unconscious bias that you have to look for. You know, if they're being evaluated, are they being evaluated fairly? Yes. Um, let me give you an example that I often share. One of my clients is a major educational institution, world-renowned, top-tier organization. I had done a CIO search and hired a diverse candidate, and then he needed to hire is VP of infrastructure. That's the person who puts in place all of the networking, all of the telecom, all of the, um, you know, today it's the data clouds, all of that. Well, this is a university that is highly technical and, um, and, and so they, and they had a lot of highly technical people in it. So they, but they needed a strong leader. I had a candidate, and it's very hard to find diverse candidates, um, especially women. So in this case, I found a, a woman that was a candidate, and, and she met all of the criteria, technical, exuded people leadership skills. She did not have a college degree, okay? So she went, you know, she became a mom, had kids, and then took all the networking class and did all this and had taken classes but had never gotten her degree. So what we did was we had to bring that up. You know, here are all the strengths she has, but our, you know, does, she doesn't have a degree. Is there an education bias at this academic at, at location, you know, at this academic institution? And they decided meeting the, the steering committee decided that meeting the criteria was more important. So they interviewed her. When they went to present her to the administration of the university, that bias came out again and was asked. The CIO remembered that discussion and had that discussion with his higher-ups around what she met, and even though she didn't have a degree. So that's where you have to interview around the competencies and then determine you know, because she doesn't have a degree, is that important? Yeah. Okay. And so it's very nuanced. Can I ask, did they appoint her? She, they did. And she's doing fantastic. Great. Because I think it's really important to understand that, that these things actually um, 
have a, an, an end result. And right. So well, and and oh. she's a person of color on top of that. Brilliant. And yes. I think, you know, challenging our own thinking is just so important because I think you're right. You said right at the beginning that what's said in the media tends to, and these are my words, be at very surface level. But as you're unpicking these things, I hope that the people who are listening to this are starting to recognize their own bias. And as you say, we all have them. It comes from our cavemen uh, uh, beginnings that anything that was different was seen as a threat, um, that you wanted those people who belong to your tribe, who looked like you, sounded like you. But I'd like to think in the 21st century that we've moved on a bit. So right, right. I doubt that. There was the woman that taught, um, one of the women that taught bias training, it's from the Clayman Institute at Stanford. Um, one of the women who taught it is an Asian woman. So she always started out with a joke, you probably think I'm smart and play violin. And, and so we always have these, so the biases can actually work in your favor also, right? So everybody thinks that she's like top of the class and she just jokes with it and goes along with it. Well, I'm, I'm blonde. I wear glasses. Do so you know that I'm smart? Yes. You know, those kinds of things. So you have to play with those biases and understand them. Um, one other thing on the interview process, I'll kind of add in there that's not on the biases, but very simple process thing you can do. Just include interviewers who are diverse, who look like the kind of people you want to bring on board and include them early in the interview process so that the candidates see someone like themselves, a role model, and so that you've got that interview, that person in the room, you know, adding their thoughts to the interview process. That's a great idea, but I suspect there are going to be many organizations for whom the process that we're talking about is relatively new, and they may not actually have those people as yet um, on, their, on their staff. And so... It, and if you haven't and you're listening to this, then it really is time that you started to think as an organization very, very carefully about diversity and what you're missing out on because there's such a richness that comes from diversity. One of my clients that was a major tech company was hiring a CFO and, and they had two finalists, equal experience, man and woman. There were no women on the interview panel except for the recruiter, the recruiting manager, if you will. And yet the head of the audit committee on the board was a woman, but they didn't pull her into the interview process. And so there were no women that interviewed the two finalists. It's, I, and I don't think it comes that people di deliberately think to exclude. I think it's an unconscious bias where they don't think to include it's it's unintentional yeah. it's unintentional and and you know just not aware and so part of me pointing these things out is just to think about it you know I, I bring up if then hmm if I'm interviewing am I interviewing fairly you know just just asking that question will get you to start recognizing some of these things so you can yeah. be more intentional so the next step after interviewing is this decision process. You know, we got into having diverse interviewers. We'll make sure that jury or steering committee, the final de decision makers are, guess what? Evaluating against those competencies. Yeah, definitely. Right? And, and again, there's, 
there's, you know, one besides experience or, or similarity bias, there's the safety bias. We used to say, you can't go wrong by buying IBM. That's a safety bias. You know, hiring someone like yourself is a safety bias or, you know, the distance bias might come up. You know, there was one uh, major tech company that had been promoting to their recruiters, you'll get, you'll get bonuses if a, if a diverse candidate is hired. So they all spent all the extra cycles doing the kinds of things I've been talking about. The, the steering committee was the executives who sat in a room with the interviewers who had never, never interviewed and they made decisions and they, were, they hired all people in their likeness, but they never even interviewed the candidates. So it dis, you know, it got all of the recruiters disenchanted. Why should I go through the extra cycles if the steering committee isn't part of, and the, the decision makers aren't part of the interview process and they're not on board with this. So you can see it goes through to the decision-making. It's one of the reasons why the leadership is at top level is so important. And that that message that actually we are encouraging diversity. We want great candidates. This is not about lowering standards, but it is about widening the net and ensuring that we have a real um, array of people who come from different backgrounds, different you know, ethnicities, um, gender and so on. But if you don't have that message coming right from the top, then it's just lip service, isn't it? We want more diverse people, but actually we want them diverse, but not yet or not now. Um, and I think, you know, again, if you're listening to this, be really mindful. If you're the senior decision maker within your organization or within your department, you have to take a lead and you have to be really explicit about what it is you want and why. So that diversity starts at the top. It is the CEO saying what's the commitment internally, what's the commitment externally, communicating that and make sure everyone understands that it's part of their job, their objectives. And then you need to put in place the measures. We can't improve what we don't measure. So you have to figure out what are the measures that are important for your business and what you want to improve and then put those in place. They may look bad to begin with. You may only you know, share them internally, not externally, like some corporations are doing. But you've got to start somewhere by make, you know, doing those measures so you know where you are today and what you want to improve from there. Absolutely. You've got to have a baseline, haven't you, from which to work? Um, and yes. if you don't know what that baseline is, then how can you put strategically things in place to, to change it? Exactly. Um, there are a couple other things. I'll, I'll add a couple other tips that I look for in the interviewing that come up all the time. The diverse candidates do not present themselves in the same way that, um, that white males will be presenting themselves. And this I've learned from my years of interviewing. And a, a case in point on this, when I was doing a CIO search, I asked, how many reports do you have? And the, the woman CIO candidate said, I've got five direct reports. So I did a big, okay, time out. How many people are on their teams? Mm, about 10. How many contractors do you have? Mm, about 50. So she, she led a team of 100, but said five. Wherein 
other interviews, other people might have said, I lead teams up to 120, and she's saying five. And I've seen the same thing with, I, I had a diverse candidate that did the same thing. And I, um, I think it comes from, remember that list of competencies, the diverse candidates might start out and say, well, I don't have five, six, seven, eight, or I don't have this experience, but I do this. There's um, a, a thing in human nature, and I'll point this out because it's another bias, and I don't know the name of this bias. Um, there's a TV show called Brain Games, and my kids love it, so we watch it. And it shows how we react to some of these biases. So they send in two twins. One twin always starts with you know, one way um, and says, every year I usually sell 10 million. This year has been a bad year. I only sold 2 million. The other two twin goes in and says, I only, it's been a bad year, I only sold 2 million, but I usually sell 10 million. The twin that always gets the job is the one that led with the good news. Yeah. I always sell 10 million, but it's been a bad year. And so the same thing could be said, think about it, if someone is coming in and presenting, well, I don't have this, but I do this, they're the, they're the twin that doesn't get the job. And so as you're going through the recruiting process, you have to be watching for, are, are the candidates presenting themselves? Do they have the same experience, but they're just presenting themselves with their own bias and how, and how they communicate? And if, if I see that kind of a bias or that humbleness of a candidate, I'm coaching the candidates and I'm coaching the clients to watch for that, that they're going to underrepresent themselves. Because it's not just one answer of five versus a hundred. They'll typically do it every single piece of experience. They're underrepresenting themselves. You know, very early on in my career, I went on a course uh, around the, the, the skill of interviewing and they brought in actors to be the candidates and I was a bit cheeky really because I'd only been um, work, teaching for about four years and it was full of, of very experienced people who had been interviewing for 15, 20, 25 years and the, the, they videoed the process and without exception you saw the candidate that was articulate and actually when you played it back quite glib about what they did, got the job. When you started to unpick what was said and the real meat of what they said, there were candidates who were far more deserving, but because their delivery wasn't as slick, they got, they got passed over. And the other thing is that people asked their question and they were so busy asking their question that there was no subsidiary question. So your time out and so you, 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 leave, you, know, you have five direct reports, who reports to them and who reports to them. You know, having those subsidiary questions to really unpick and discover the reality is such an important skill in interviewing, isn't it? It is. It's interesting. You raised a really good point. The people who are good at sales and marketing and sharing what they've done, yeah. if you don't do a good job of interviewing around those competencies, we call it broad brush. You're only going to learn this. And there are some candidates that are really good at delivering the high level answers, but not saying anything about what they've done. 
And so you have to dive in deep to understand you know, what did they do? What did they accomplish? How did they lead? And that's the behavioral interviewing that gets you to really understand this is the real deal. This is the person who executed and, and led that initiative and would be good for our company as opposed to the salesperson who's all talk. And I think what, why it's so important that we're having this conversation and people can watch it is that if you have an awareness that, you know, those people, I call it my BS meter, you know, you're listening to uh, this wonderful um, story. But in many cases, when you say, well, where's your evidence? You know, give us some concrete evidence of the impact of what you've done. Um, everything begins to dissolve because they don't have that in that underpinning um, experience and expertise. And if you recognize that, that diverse candidates are likely to demonstrate uh, a style which doesn't do them the best justice, then you can interview in a very different way than if you're oblivious to that. Exactly. So here's a quick if then that people can use. Okay. If I'm interviewing someone and I've asked a question, then ask a follow up question. Okay. And the follow up questions can be okay, they brought up their experience doing X. I always ask the follow up question about you know, what, what was the result? What did your team say about it? What would you have changed? You know, how did you do that? What was your process? What were the results? What would you do different next time? And it doesn't have to be one follow-up question. It can be several. And you'll really get to the crux of what they did and how they led if you get into that example and get further in there to understand who they are and do they, you know, they say they're collaborative, but were they really collaborative? They say they're strategic, but what did they really do and how did they go about that? Because we use words, don't we, all the time, but we use them in different ways. So your view of strategic and my view of strategic may be different. I suspect, actually, having talked to you, they're probably pretty similar. But many people use these high-level language uh, words to describe something, but actually... The reality is something different, and you've got to unpick that. Exactly. I um, Really early in my career, I had a VP of sales who was a good people leader. And when I got down to it, he was a good people leader. His team followed him from company to company. That's something that happens in Silicon Valley. They move from startups. Well, they followed him because he never held them accountable for their numbers. <laughs> when I really got down to it. Now, that's not a good people leader of a sales organization. Yeah, no, that's not a leader at all, is it? But that's a whole different, uh, a whole different recording video, I think. Right. So I've just recognised that from the people that who may be watching that, some of them may be very experienced, and some of them fairly inexperienced in terms of in looking at inclusion. Is there anything else that you would include? Because I recognise that I've kept interrupting you. Is there anything else that you would include that I? I've, um, I've got in the way of really. Well, downstream after the hiring is where inclusion really comes to play. And we haven't even touched on it. It's probably a whole nother program. Yeah. After you've hired them, it's the onboarding and the inclusion of those. Do you have an, an environment that's conducive to retaining that employee? 
you know, are your promotion and pay practices promoting equality? It, does this person have access to mentors and role models, you know, and especially like themselves or just someone that's going to help introduce them into the right networks? You know, what are you doing for training and development? And so there's a whole bunch of other topics that can be done around inclusion and really the other pillars of HR beyond this hiring process. Thank you. And I'm hopeful that we will have another, uh, another uh, session where we can explore those in great detail. Um, before we finish, where can people find you? Okay, great. Um, I'm at Odgers Berenson. We are the global number one, um, number one recruiter in the UK and global, we're one of the number, uh, top six executive search firms globally with 60 offices. So we do executive search, but you can see that there's a lot more that we do around diversity inclusion. We, right now we have been pointing our proprietary AI engine at locating those diverse networks. Okay. At the end of the year, I might be able to talk about how ex you know, extensive those networks are, so stay tuned, but I, I'm quite excited about that. In addition, we do leadership consulting. We do leadership assessment, so working on the leadership development of these folks. We're developing some offerings around organizational change and inclusion and have a project right now, a company that uh, a tech company that said, we're not doing inclusion right, we need some help. So it, those types of diversity offerings. We also have interim processes. So the best way to reach out to me is on LinkedIn. Um, you can always find me. My name is spelled, I think you can find it in, in the, the names here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's probably the best way to reach out. Just say you watch this and you would like to connect. Brilliant. Thank you very much. It's been really informative. Thank you very much for your time. And I do hope that you're going to join us uh, for a second video that will take us from the uh, interview into how to get the very best of those people once they're actually on your star. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Um, this is um, really to help you get to grips with diversity. You've only got to look at the news to recognize that as a human race, we need to be more inclusive, to actually recognize and value everyone for the contribution that they can make. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon. Thank you, bye-bye now. If you're a businesswoman who is overwhelmed or suffering from imposter syndrome, who is tired of having one disastrous relationship after another, or who finds it hard just to say no, well, it's time to take care of you. You get the best out of life by contacting Gina Gardner, relationship coach and best-selling author and motivational speaker. Just visit genuinely-u.com or you can email Gina directly at gina at genuinely-u.com. Take action now. Start to thrive rather than simply survive.
Imagine being a highly successful, enlightened leader who is in complete alignment with your best self, who makes a positive difference on a daily basis. Let me introduce Gina Gardner, an expert in developing transformational leadership with over 30 years of experience. Gina has developed a unique and unrivaled approach to help you step into your genuine power to become an enlightened leader. And when you do, amazing things happen. Go to enlightenedleadership.co or email Gina at gina at genuinely-u.com. Welcome back to the second part of the show today. As always, the second part of the show is a genuine chat with my very good friend, Rachel Davidson. Both of us international best-selling authors, very different style of books. Mine are all about self-help and leadership. Rachel's are a very different sort of book. She is a spiritual novelist and she has created an amazing trilogy called Beyond Fails. Within the books, Great stories, really um, rich with life's lessons. Um, they make me cry. They make me laugh. They make me think. <laughs> I thoroughly recommend them. You can find them on Amazon. My books are all there too. And those of you that have uh, explored the website, genuinely-u.com, will find the books are there, both sets of books, incidentally. Today, our theme is around holding on to things long after they are um, useful. And we could be talking about material things. You know, how many of you got cupboards that are cluttered with things that you haven't worn for 20 years or the kitchen stuff that you've never used or used once and then thought it's too much hassle and it's gone to the back of the cupboard? Or the emotional things that you hold on to, the hurts, the, the, the not letting go of old out dated habits, ways of being. Mm. And in a sense, they're all holding me back mm. because there is now a growing uh, sense that when our life is cluttered with stuff that is no longer useful to us, that energetically that that is holding us back and acting as, um, as a weight really, like carrying a portmanteau around with you all the time. Mm. I mean, I think the main thing to to that strikes me when when we talk about you know holding on and holding on to things is great, but th there usually is a point at, at which you should regularly be checking if it if whatever this is is of use. So your work, your behaviour, your relationships, your your belongings, your aspirations, yeah, your, your beliefs of yourself, whatever. Um, you, you should definitely come around and just do the is it still valid is it still helping me is it, it is it still being healthy and I think a lot of people um who tip you know go over that tipping point and and start to behave in a way that is now becoming damaging um are, are people who who haven't fundamentally got the main message that the universe has to give you um which is you're not in control <laughs> you have free will and you have choice, but there's a there's a big difference between those things and controlling everything. 
and and the vast majority of what happens to us in our lives all our lives is a mixture of chance and luck and possibly fate but but is actually outside of our direct control and i think i think that's obviously a very scary concept to have to get your head around that's why children i think tend to have a very conservative with a with a little c conservative nature because you know they have a have a risk tolerance that is lower for obvious reasons they're children they you know fundamentally they're more vulnerable and then as you grow into being an adult and you get more and more used to being responsible for yourself your your tolerance to risk hopefully gets a little bit better and you find yourself you know being able to forge out into the world in some way but ultimately you know you you do have to accept that you don't you're not in control of the vast majority of it so holding on to stuff i think is a way of trying to get some sense of control uh, over what is ultimately can feel like a very chaotic universe. It's almost like holding on to a, um, a small um, plank in the middle of a tsunami and hoping that the plank is going to save you. Um, I've just come off the phone to a client and one of the things that came very clear, this isn't it interesting that we thought of the theme um, long before I was talking to the client. And yet this is what came up with the client is the holding on to things, even though you're aware that it's not doing you any good. So old patterns of belief, behavior, um, thinking and actions, mm. And holding on to them, even though in that very moment of holding on to them, you know that there is a much better way, mm. but you still do it. And, you know, over the years, clients have given me the excuse, yeah, but it was because of my upbringing, or yes, it was because of my conditioning, or because, because, because. Mm. And I think the bottom line comes, and you, you, you mentioned it, but I want to really labour it, is ultimately your choice. Mm. You can choose to stay stuck in the patterns that are not serving you anymore and be uncomfortable. I'll come back to that in a minute. Or you can choose to do what you know is the thing that feels right, but you still don't want to do it. Yeah, because you say be uncomfortable, but in reality, holding on to things that are familiar because we yeah. have grown used to them actually feels very comfortable. And the opportunity to let go of them um, although you may logically know that this will be a better behavior pattern, a better approach or whatever, you've still got to go through that process of, of not feeling comfortable, of having to let go of something that's familiar and you know the, the bound, rough boundaries of it versus, I mean, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's quite a few people who are in jobs that they don't really like. Um, you know, they have lots and lots of skills and aptitude for other things, but they stay stuck. And mainly that's because they have this question in their mind of, but if I don't do this, then who am I? And if I don't do this, will I be able to, and there'll be a long list of, of those things. Yeah. And that leads as we to depression. It leads to uh, all sorts of, of issues physically, emotionally uh, uh, and spiritually. But, it, you know, having an awareness is the first important thing because if you're not aware then you can't do anything yeah but i if you're listening or watching this one of the things i would really urge you to do is to do an audit 
of those things which you continue to do even though you know that they are harmful those ways that you continue to think beat yourself up talk to yourself and so on and if you are continuing to do them big question why why do you continue to do them and if it is simply because they feel familiar then the thing with all new things is to recognize that very quickly they become familiar too, like a pair of new shoes. Um, they always feel a little bit uh, on the uncomfortable side until you've worn them in. But you have that choice. That list would effectively become a list of what your fears are. And, and yes. the TEDx talk about that sort of, you know, don't, don't bother to list what your dreams are because um, it, it's actually what's holding you back in life is your fear. So list out what your fears are and then yeah. analyze them and go through them and say, well, how relevant is that fear? And what, what, what's the impact of it? If it happens, what, what happens to me? Yeah. You know, is this a, a, a massive, very sensible fear to have, or is it something that's holding you back? So, you know, I think in, in saying to yourself, I'm holding on to this, what's my fear behind it? You know, or, or what am I hoping to achieve by having it? Or what am I hoping to lose by not having it? However you phrase the question. Um, you're looking at, at, at the stuff that is keeping you stuck rather than um, constantly trying to, you know, imagine what your, your next landing point is. I think, I think sometimes people will jump from, um, I, I feel bad over here. I want to get over there. I'll just look over there. And you have to acknowledge that, that, that there are two forces you are being attracted yes that's good but you are being held and often it you have to break the holding I mean I can remember the distinct point in my life when I, I really learned the lesson of letting go and I was in a corporate job and I'd worked really really hard at a particular project and the politics of the organization got me and in came some um triply paid consultants to do the job that I, I was doing and I was told summarily uh, right you're not on this you have to hand it over and um, obviously that was a big um, a big deal to me because I'd invested a lot of my time and my you know my sense of purpose in this thing and suddenly it just meant nothing I wasn't involved with it anymore and um, I, I went round and round and round um, in the emotions and I finally just realized that you know, there was no point in holding on. There was no point in having the fight, just absolutely no point whatsoever. And that there was actually great sense of liberty if I just went, fine, have it. <laughs> just <laughs> I remember the moment when I handed all the paper, all the files over to this new chap and how I wished him luck with the best grace I could muster at the time, <laughs> which looking back probably wasn't that much, but was more than I felt. So, um, but but walking away, I just I just thought, fine, you know, let it go, whatever. If if I'm not meant to do that for whatever reason, then I'm meant to do something else. So let's just be free to see what comes up. And of course, my life didn't end. I went on and I did other things that I came to find great deal of interest and passion in. You know, that project. I can't even remember the topic of that project. I just remember that sense of having to, being forced to let it go. Um, and I think sometimes that's a good thing. It's coming to a point and saying, no, I'm, I'm not doing well enough. This is not happening for me. Why isn't it happening for me? You know, lots and lots of reasons. But just coming to the point and saying, well, maybe giving up, maybe letting go is yeah. actually the best success I can get out of this. 
It's interesting. Let's go back to my client this morning. This is a lady who has a huge sense of purpose, and I believe that she is destined to fulfill her purpose. Mm -hmm. The thing that's holding her back is her and her, her fears. Um, and the fear, I think, is of being, um, is of her success. And we were talking this morning about she goes forward and then it's as if there's a chain around her neck yanking her back into those old fearful patterns of being oh. um and she's uncomfortable in those old patterns because she recognizes that that's not where she's supposed to be mm -hmm. so very uncomfortable uh, gets very tearful very upset very fearful and i said to her you know it's interesting you know in that place it feels heavy and dark and you don't want to be there and um, you know what you're wanting to do and you want to do it you say um it's a bit like putting your finger in a in a pan of boiling water and saying that hurts and i don't want to be there but not taking your finger out of the hot water mm. um when she is in flow and she is um actually actively working towards um achieving what she feels is her purpose mm. she lights up she is she is joyful mm. and yet there are times when something takes her into this dark place and instead of coming out of it straight away as if you would use your finger in the hot water you take it out straight away and go out mm. she lingers in the in the hot water mm. of discomfort and we have this conversation about why and ultimately, I believe it's a choice mm. and it's making that active choice, which says that's not what I want. What I want is has a great, a great metaphor that I think is useful. Um, she she talks about these moments of great fear in her life and how her her fear used to drive a lot of her decisions. And, yep. and, and then she finally realized that actually what she was trying to do was get rid of fear and dismiss it and you know, shove it out the door. In which case, of course, it would just come back. Not yeah. Yeah. So she would basically have a conversation with her fear, as I think she does with all her emotions. <laughs> actually, she, I know she talks to love a lot. Um, and she would say, look, hi, fear. Um, come on in. Sit down. That's your seat over there. You've obviously got something to say to me so we can have a conversation. But I just want you to know that on this journey called my life, that's your seat there. Uh, and I will listen to you but you're not in the driving seat. So don't ever get back in the driving seat again. Think, you're just stay over there. Tap me on the shoulder. If you think, if you think there's something that I really need to know. And, and so she sort of came to a peace, a sense of, you know, acceptance. And I think you should do this with all your emotions, really, especially the negative ones. You know, people run so hard from feeling sort of bad or angry or, you know, list out whatever the, the negative emotions are for you. And people try desperately not to feel it. And I think, that's often where you end up learning yourself is. and Absolutely. being depressed. I think you should invite these feelings in and say, what are you trying to tell me? You're not in control of everything. You get to have a voice. So tell me, tell me what you're trying to get me to see. And then I'll consider it. And I think that's interesting that people run away or they try to bury those feelings. Yeah. If you run away from them, the trouble is that you are not necessarily running in the direction that you uh, are destined to or need to run in order 
to um, to fulfill whatever it is mm. or you bury them and then it's like trying to bury a dragon in a box and suddenly something opens the box and the dragon's there and it becomes bigger because you fed it with yeah. the energy of burying it or, or or putting it in the box so you know we're drawing we've got a few minutes left but i think one of the things that i would say to you is we're moving um forward that everything you do is your choice i mean everything how you think how you act how you speak when if all of those are absolutely your choice when you then take responsibility for those choices life changes mm. nobody can make you a victim to anything unless you choose to and when life happens you know a serious accident or illness or bereavement you can't choose those but you can choose the way in which you deal with them mm-hmm. and it's as simple and as complicated as that mm. you choose you go to a buffet you choose what you put on your plate and how much you're going to eat you choose oh, <laughs> whether or not you're going to take the healthy option or not um and so life is like a big buffet and that we do have choice and i'm not making light of those significant life challenges goodness knows we've both had enough of you know in, in many of those but it is very definitely your choice whether you hold on to it or you let it go and by holding on to it you get stuck in that that spiral which often takes you further down so i would say to you if you're struggling with any of that then please do reach out for some help you'll find lots of information on the genuinely you hyphen you site if you want training you'll find that on the gina garden associates uh, site there's lots of stuff in the books on youtube please sign up to the genuinely you youtube site um but recognize if you choose you're in the driver's seat if you don't choose somebody else is going to drive you and they don't necessarily going to drive you where you want to go or your emotions will so thank you very much for listening you can find um beyond the veil trilogy on my website genuinely-you.com or on amazon you can find all of my books on amazon please do um come back and uh, see us at the next show always got the genuine chats if there is a theme that you would like um us to uh take part then please let us know you can email me at gina um at genuinely-you.com and all of the details are in the show notes thanks again for joining us take care see you next time bye now bye